Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. take your Bibles with me this morning. Turn to the book of Exodus 25. In a moment I'll read verses 1 through 9. Then we're going to skip around a little bit over to Exodus 35. Hopefully it'll be apparent why I'm doing that as we read it together. That You'll see that they go together. Praise God that He knows what he is doing. Do you believe that? That God knows what he is doing? That God knows what he is doing in bringing people together to sing together because when people sing together, there is a unifying force that takes place. It brings people together. Out there in the world, I can sing in my car, I can sing in the shower, but that can't hold a candle to when I come and sing with God's people. God is doing something in causing all of our voices to blend together, to say, look, people of God, you are one. Look, people of God, you are united together. Look, people of God, you believe the same things, you hold the same truth. This is the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and we sing it together. Isn't there also a unifying voice or a force that we have when we come together to sit underneath God's word? And as we hear God's word together, proclaim. As we remember the gospel. As we fix our eyes on Jesus. As God takes out his scalpel to work on our hearts every Sunday that he is transforming his people together as one. And isn't there also a unifying force when we gather around the table of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? We hold the bread and the cup in our hands when we partake and eat together. There's something that unifies us in those actions. So all that God is doing, not only is bringing us to himself, but he's also bringing us together as his people. God knows what he is doing. And so let's hear the word of the Lord this morning. Would you stand with me as I read Exodus 25, 1 through 9, and then skip over to chapter 34, beginning in verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns of fine twined linen, goat's hair tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, 
so you shall make it. Now Exodus 35, 4 through 29. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins and goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat and the veil of the screen, the table with its poles and all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamp and the oil for the light, and the altar of incense with its poles and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the door at the door of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering and its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen of the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its service, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord, and everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ramskins or goatskins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood to use in, of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and for spices and oil for the, lamp, for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be brought, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Heavenly Father, whose law is perfect, converting the soul, a sure testimony, giving wisdom to the unlearned and enlightening the eyes, we humbly humbly implore you through your boundless goodness to enlighten our blind intellect by your Holy Spirit so that we may truly understand and profess your law and live according to it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When you are about to have guests over to your house, there's something that you usually do. You get ready for them. You clean, you straighten up, you put things away. Maybe you do some extra things. You put some air freshener in the air. You set out fresh flowers on the table. You're going to have guests in your house, especially guests you might not normally have in your house, and so you will go to extra lengths to make sure that you get ready for them. And even sometimes my kids ask about why they have to do all that they have to do in order to get ready for guests that are coming into our house. 
because they are required to clean things and put away things that they might say, those guests are never going to see that. Maybe it's a good excuse for us to clean up when things need to be cleaned up. There's something else that takes place in my household. I don't know if it takes place in your household or not. And this is something that my wife has taught me over the years. When we are about to go on vacation, not only are we packing up all of the stuff that we need to take with us on vacation, but we're also cleaning and straightening up the house before we leave for vacation. The first time we did this, I thought to myself, why are we doing all of this extra work? We're leaving the house. What does it matter? We have more important things to tackle to make sure that we get out of the door. Let's focus on those things and less on cleaning up the house right now. But as I often find out in my own life, what my wife was pursuing and pushing the rest of us to do was a good thing and actually a monumental thing. Because all of the work that you do up front as you prepare to leave your house on vacation, all the cleaning, all the straightening up, has a huge return in the end. You come home from vacation to a clean house. You already have stuff to put away from the vacation, but it's minimal. And so there is less stress in coming back from vacation when you have a clean, tidy, and neat house. And in fact, it brings peace to you as you come back home. We are at a crucial point in the book of Exodus. The Israelites have just been rescued and redeemed by the Lord out of the land of Egypt where they have been enslaved. They've just been led by the Lord as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of, cloud, a pillar of fire by night. They have miraculously crossed the Red Sea as they were walking on dry land. They watched as their enemies, the Egyptians, were thrown into confusion in the midst of the sea and the walls of water came crashing down upon them, drowning them in judgment. They have been taken by the Lord through the wilderness where he provided manna and water and protection from their enemies. They have been led to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, where the Lord has descended upon it in fire and smoke, making the whole mountain tremble. And we have seen the great and awesome God reach out to his people in grace and love, promising he would take care of them, that he would take them even to himself as a people for his special possession, as a holy nation, as a kingdom of priests. We have heard from Yahweh's own lips the ten words or the ten commandments that he gave to his people to establish how they were going to live in relationship with him but there has just been one problem. The people, as of yet, have not been able to get close to God. The covenant mediator, Moses, has been called into the very presence of God. We saw that last week. Moses is up on the mountain. He's called into the cloud. He's called into the very presence of God. But the people have not been able to go up on the mountain, and they haven't been, even been able to touch it. But now we move into a long speech given by Yahweh himself to Moses to instruct Moses on how he is about to draw near to his people. What is he saying? Get ready. Get ready, my people. Get ready. I am about to be in your midst. And here in this long speech, and we might think such a long speech would be boring. In fact, 25 through 31 is one long speech of Yahweh that he's giving. But all of this is saying, get ready, people. I'm coming. I'm coming to be near to you. I'm coming to be close to you. This is how he is going to get closer to his people and how his people will know his imminence and have an interpersonal relationship with him. What a thought. That God wants to intimately know his people. 
He doesn't want to hide from them. He doesn't want to keep them at arm's length. He doesn't want to be aloof. God wants to know his people. He wants his people to know him in the most intimate and personal relationship that is imaginable. To think that humanity can have that kind of relationship with the divine. This might go without saying, but let me say it just so that everyone is clear. Christians are supposed to have a relationship with the Lord. And Christians are supposed to know that they have to have a relationship with the Lord in order to be a Christian. There is a huge problem in your life if you don't have a relationship with the Lord and if you don't know that you're supposed to have a relationship with the Lord. If you don't have a relationship with Him and you don't know Him, how is it that you know that you're saved and how is it that you found your salvation in Him? So here we're coming to this long speech Exodus 25, all the way through 31. Then there is a little bump in the road, isn't there? Or a big bump in the road with the golden calf. And then, as we started back in 35, so we have 25 through 31, long speech. 32 through 34, the golden calf and Moses seen the Lord's glory. And then we pick up back in 35 through the end of the book basically of the people obeying what God had said in 25 through 31. And that then they're fulfilling what he's told them to do. They're obeying what he has told them to do. They're getting ready for God to be in their midst, to be with them. The Lord is preparing his people to receive him He is telling them what he wants. They will not have to guess. So what is it that God wants? How are the Israelites going to get ready for God? And what can we learn about who we are to be in light of this text? And how are we ourselves getting ready for God? Well, let's look at the ways. Number one this morning. You can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful. Number one, God desires a people who will give generously to his plan. God desires a people who will give generously to his plan. Think about where we are here. God has just called Moses to himself. Moses stands in the very presence of God on Mount Sinai. He's surrounded by the glory of God, and now Yahweh speaks to Moses, and what's the first thing Yahweh says? We ever think that sometimes the first words carry a weight and a priority with them? Like, what's the first thing that they say? Well, that's important. We should listen to that. And so what does Yahweh say at the very beginning of his speech? He says, take from me a contribution. Receive the contribution for me. He calls upon the people of God to give an offering to him. And notice here, as we look in chapter 25, the first nine verses, the focus of this contribution is on Yahweh. It's to be for Him. Take for me a contribution. You shall receive the contribution for me. Our giving is to be directed to the Lord. There is a singular purpose to why they were giving. It was an offering to the Lord. When you give, who are you giving to? You are giving to the Lord. Is He your motivation in giving? Do you think of Him when you're giving? Is He your desire? And is He why you want to give? 
it leads us to ask, how were they supposed to give? I'm going to run through some verses here quickly. Verse 2 in chapter 25 says, Every man whose heart moves him. Chapter 35, 5, it says, Whoever is of a generous heart. 35, 21, Everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him. Verse 22, All who were of a willing heart. Verse 26, all the women whose hearts stirred them. Verse 29, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them. Do you hear it? There's something that's going on inside the lives and the hearts of the people. Something is moving them and stirring them. It's not something from the outside that is placed upon them that is moving them towards God. It's something that's happening in here, in their heart. Their hearts moved them. Their souls were stirred. Who is it that can move and stir hearts? Isn't it God? Isn't He the one who stirs hearts? Isn't he the one who moves hearts? And so they were supposed to give from their hearts. They were supposed to give generously. They were supposed to make a voluntary offering. This was not under compulsion. No one was making them give. It was their own hearts that had been so moved that made them want to give. What does it say if you are unwilling to give? Is it because the Lord isn't stirring your heart, moving you? Is it because your heart is hardened against the Lord? Oh, would the Lord give us soft hearts and so move our hearts and stir our souls that we then would want to give to Him? And the people give generously because of who the Lord is and how He has worked and how he is working in him. It has to be the Lord because what else or who else would make you freely and wantingly and generously give what you would have that otherwise you would use on yourself. But that the Lord would make you say, I'm not going to use this for my own benefit I'm not going to use this for myself. Instead, I'm going to give it to the Lord. It's for Him. It's for the furtherance of His plan and His kingdom in the world. Who can say such a thing? Only, only those who understand the great grace and redemption that they have received from the Lord. How much has the Lord given to you? How much grace has the Lord lavished upon you? You sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Does the fullness of God's grace fill up the vision of your life? And you say, this is God's grace, this is undeserved, I can't earn it, I don't deserve it, but yet look at what God has given me in sending his own son to save me from my sin and forgive me. What more, what more could God give than his own son? Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, the one who takes away our sin on his cross the one who takes away the sin of those who have believed in his name. And he died as our substitute, yielding up his spirit. He was forsaken by God. The father was willing to lose his son, and the son was willing to lose the father there at the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sin and be reconciled to God. Jesus paid it all, and Jesus gave it all so that we might receive salvation and redemption through his work by the grace of God. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater 
than all our sin. Grace is what moves us to give and give and give and give generously. How you give and what you give is a reflection upon your relationship with God and about your faith in Him and who you believe Him to be. Is the God that you worship and the God that you serve a God of grace? Is He a God of love? Is He a God of mercy? Then give. But what were they supposed to give? As we look over Exodus 25 here, we see all of these materials that were supposed to be given towards God's plan for the tabernacle. We see that these are costly, precious, expensive materials. Everything from gold to onyx stones shows the quality of the material that they were give. Look at just one example. They were to give yarns, and some of these yarns had been dyed, either blue or purple or scarlet. Where did they get, let's take one example, where did they get the purple dye? Well, it took the harvesting of 12,000 murex snails, 12,000 murex snails to harvest 1.4 grams of purple dye. That's how costly and precious. In fact, many common people didn't have dyed material because it was so expensive. It was used for royalty. It was used for the kings. These were valuable materials. But let us think for a moment. Where did Israel get all of these things? Some could have come from the land around them. The Sinai Peninsula is abundant in acacia wood. They could have gotten some of it from their own herds and flocks. But much of it would come from what the Israelites had plundered from Egypt. Remember, that happened as they left the land. The Egyptians were so ready to send them out that they gave them their valuables and so the Israelites plundered Egypt. They were saying, yes, please leave and here. We will give you all of our valuables if you will just leave our land. We can't take it anymore. We can't take God's judgment anymore. Please, please just leave. What does this teach us? We are only giving to the Lord what he has already graciously given to us. What do we have that we have not received? Nothing. Everything that we have, everything that we possess, the number in your bank account, all that has come from the hand of the Lord. So what were the Israelites doing with their offerings? What are we doing in our offerings? We're giving back to the Lord what He has already given to us. You are only able to give the, to the Lord what He has given to you. There is nothing of which you can say, Lord, I am giving you something that you did not give to me. Everything is his. And so in your giving, all that you are doing is giving back to the Lord what he has already given to you. There was a problem. What did the Israelites first give to? Did they first give to the Lord? Did they first make a contribution to Him? Remember, Exodus 25 is the Lord's instruction to Moses. Say, Moses, tell the people this. What was the first offering that the Israelites took? Exodus 32. Look at that. Verse 4. And he received, that's Aaron, 
received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What was the first offering? It wasn't an offering to the Lord. It's an offering of bring all your gold and we're going to make an idol. We're going to make a golden calf. And they contribute to something that would enslave them and capture them. They contribute to idols. And how many, how many give their money to what would enslave them and take over their lives and hold them captive? How many would rather contribute to themselves than contribute to the Lord? How many would rather serve the almighty dollar? You cannot serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Sow your money in the bountiful work of the Lord, and you will reap bountifully in the Lord. Notice what I just said there. (laughs) It's important. Don't skip over that. Sow your money bountifully in the work of the Lord, and you will reap bountifully in the Lord. I didn't say, and you will reap bountifully with more money and more possessions. I said, you will be blessed with the Lord himself. And there's something that happens. So the people fail, and they fall, and their first contributions are made to the idols But then in 35, we see them obey the word of the Lord. They come back. They're making these contributions. They're giving to the Lord generously and freely and voluntarily. And you know what Moses ends up saying to them? Stop. We have enough. Is that how we're giving? As Jeff read for us this morning, God loves a reluctant, hard-hearted, stingy, one who is forced to. No, God loves a cheerful giver. Number two, God desires a place where he will dwell with his people. God desires a place where he will dwell with his people. Have you ever complained? Let me say that again, sorry. God desires a place where he will dwell with his people. Just make sure you got that. Have we ever complained by saying, it's not good enough. I want something better. I want something more. I want the best. Our children never seem to have problems saying that, do they? And maybe sometimes while we don't say it with our mouths, maybe our heart is feeling it. We come to verse 8 in Exodus 25. And the Lord says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This verse falls within the stream of redemptive history and it encapsulates all that God is doing in the world, what he has been doing even since the Garden of Eden. It takes us back to that initial place, that sacred place of the garden where God and man dwelt together in perfect harmony and unity and fellowship. This was all that man could have ever wanted. Adam and Eve had God and they were charged with extending his glory and enlarging the borders of the garden so that the dominion of God and the glory of God would cover the whole earth. God's design was to dwell with his people in all the earth, but it was not because it was not it was to not be because Adam and Eve sinned against God. God had told Adam and Eve, don't eat eat of that tree, 
of the knowledge of good and evil. And they took the fruit and they ate. They transgressed God. They disobeyed God in the garden. And so they were cast out of the garden. They were cast out of the presence of God. The peace, the unity, and the fellowship they had known with God was broken beyond their capability to repair it. And so the greatest problem in the world took form out of this sin. Man separated from God. What is the greatest problem in the world today? What are the challenges that we face? Whatever we might lament about in this world, the greatest problem is that man is separated from God by his sin. That's been the problem since the garden. That is the greatest problem now, and that will always be the greatest problem until the Lord returns and makes everything right. And unless the problem of sin is dealt with, there is no hope in getting back to God. But what does God, in authoring the Bible, do? He shows us that He is moving towards His people to get back to that place where He again dwells with them in peace, in unity, and in fellowship. And so verse 8 is a glimpse into the goal of redemption. And so what does the Lord tell the people to do with all of their contributions? They are supposed to make the Lord a sanctuary. Don't skip over that word for a second. Look at that little word. Verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary. Notice what it does not say. It does not say they are supposed to build. Building has a sense of permanence. Making this sanctuary allowed it to still be portable. It was a portable tabernacle. It was a portable tent that would have traveled with the people wherever they went. And notice that it was supposed to be a sanctuary or a holy place, a place dedicated to the glory and worship of Yahweh. It was set apart from Him, for Him. The whole tabernacle compound would be a holy place for the Lord. And it was there where the Lord would dwell in their midst. What a precious, precious purpose and promise of God. Think about all that Yahweh had done so far. Yahweh had already freed them from slavery. Yahweh had already passed over them and preserved their firstborn children when they had smeared blood on the door frames of their houses. Yahweh had already led them by a pillar of cloud and by a pillar of fire. Yahweh had already split the Red Sea into two. Yahweh had already provided water. Yahweh had already provided manna. Yahweh had already won the victory over their enemies. Yahweh had already descended in fire on the top of Mount Sinai and wrapped it in smoke. And yet, it is not the people who complain, but it is Yahweh who says, it's still not good enough. There's something better for you. I will give you more. And by more, I mean I will give you myself. I will dwell in your midst. The almighty creator God, the one who sees all and knows all, the great judge living in the midst of his people. God is getting closer to his people. He is showing his intention that again, he is the transcendent and imminent God who is intent on having a close relationship with his people. And this should be, brothers and sisters, our greatest desire to dwell with God, to be forever close to the Lord, to never have something in the way of getting us close to God. What obstacles, what obstacles are there at times in our hearts that keep us from getting close to God? Notice it's not God's problem of getting close to us, it's our problem of getting close to God. And so you have things in your life that need to be cleared out. You have obstacles that are keeping you from getting to God? What does it say in Hebrews 12? Let us lay aside all of the sin that would weigh us down, that would cling to us, 
that would keep us from running the race God's called us to with endurance. And yet, even in this tabernacle that the Lord tells the Israelites to make and says, it's there that I will dwell in your midst, yet God still says later, it's still not good enough. Can it be better? Yes, it can be better. Solomon, King Solomon, will build a house, a temple in all of its splendor, in all of its glory, and it was going to outdo the splendor of the tabernacle, And there, the glory of the Lord, again, will fill that house, will fill that temple in their midst. And if we were to think, can it get any better than that, a temple? Yes, it can get even better. How does it get better? It gets better in Jesus Christ. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt and tabernacled among us. God dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have known the fullness of God's grace and God's truth in Jesus Christ. How great it is that Christ condescended. He came and he dwelt and he lived among us. He was God. Does it get any better than that? Can it get any better than that? Yes. Look at Ephesians 2. Look at Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 20. Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, what is he talking about here? He's talking about the church, the whole structure of the church. We're not talking about physical walls and a building. He's talking about the people of God, the church in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord, in Him. What is that? In Christ. Because Christ is the Word of God that has come to tabernacle among us, you also are being built together into what? Into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God is going to dwell in you. You are this holy temple. You are this spiritual house. God is going to dwell in you by his spirit. And how is all of that made possible? Because of Christ. Because he came. Because he died. Because he is the cornerstone that was rejected. And so when we gather together as Christ's church, what's happening? This is where God's dwelling. He's dwelling with us by his spirit. Next question, you know what's coming. Can it get any better than that? Yes, it can. Go to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Twenty-one, verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, "Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man." He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself 
will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Does it get any better? Yes, it gets better in the new heaven and the new earth when finally and fully we are dwelling with God and seeing our Savior in his fullness of his glory forever and forever with all of death, with all of sin, with all of pain, with everything that would plague us now here on earth done away with. That is dwelling with God like we have never known or will ever know until we are there. That is God's desire. God desires a place where he will dwell with his people. Number three, God desires a pattern to be followed. God desires a pattern to be followed. This is the last verse of our text in Exodus 25, 25 verse 9. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Specific instructions for Moses and the people of how they are to make the sanctuary. They are to make it exactly how God wants it. He has a pattern for the tabernacle, for all of the furniture. They are to follow that pattern that he sets forth. Don't deviate from the pattern. Don't think you can improve upon the pattern. Don't think you can modify the pattern. Make it exactly how I tell you. There's something here that we should learn about how we worship God. That God would tell us in his word, here is how I want to be worshipped. And that we would say, we must follow this pattern. We cannot deviate from it. We cannot modify it. We cannot make it better. God has told us in his word expressly, exactly, the pattern that is to be followed. And it's that pattern that gives him glory. It's not us being smart or entrepreneurial, finding ways to worship him. It's simply saying, Lord, here's the pattern that you've given to us and we'll follow it. And that's the way that God has intended to receive glory from his people. God has said he is going to display his glory through our worship. And so we, we must follow the pattern that he sets forth. And notice what it is here. Look at this again, little word. Exactly as I show you concerning what? Concerning the pattern. There is a pattern. I'm not a seamstress, but I know that seamstresses sometimes follow a pattern that they have. They cut out a pattern. Right? They have something to begin with, and they use that pattern to make the piece of clothing, the article of clothing that they're going to make. The question is, what is this pattern that Moses has received? And where did it come from? The pattern is not based on anything of an earthly pattern. But this pattern is a heavenly pattern. A heavenly pattern given to Moses and the people by God and said, follow this heavenly pattern when you make the tabernacle. This tabernacle is going to be a copy of heavenly realities. 
It's not going to be greater than these heavenly realities, but it's going to be a copy, a pattern, so that when you see these things, it's going to point you forward to a greater reality, a heavenly reality that it's copied after. And now, let's finish here. Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9. Verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Why? For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. So the priests would go into these copies, they would offer their sacrifices, they would offer their blood, they would make atonement for the sin of the people. What does it say here? For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What a great truth it is for us to be assured of that we no longer have to have an earthly tabernacle that a priest goes into for us to make atonement for sin, but that we have a Savior who has gone into the heavenly realities, who has gone into the presence of God himself and offered himself as a sacrifice and said, here is my blood that cleanses my people, accept them on the basis of my sacrifice and what I have done for them. And that it's that heavenly reality that displays the greatness of his glory. Are you getting ready for God? Do you know what it is to be his dwelling place? Are you living in light of the heavenly realities that secure your place with God and your relationship with God and your reconciliation to God forever and ever? May we be ready. And may we look forward to that day when we dwell again with him for all eternity, in perfect unity, and peace, and fellowship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word, which teaches us, which proclaims your greatness, which even tells us the gospel of Christ. So I pray that we would have heard that gospel this morning, and that we would be encouraged by it, be strengthened by it, be transformed by it. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who does not have a relationship with Him, that today they would put their faith in the work that He did on the cross, believing that He died on the cross, bearing their sin, believe that He rose again from the dead on the third day, believe that He is alive forevermore, that He is the only one who can save them, and that they would turn from their sin. They would repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may you, may you unite our hearts to fear Your name as those people who long to dwell with You and as people also who are assured that you long to dwell with us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.